You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to FDNY Pro's WNYF Podcast. I'm Lieutenant John Paul Orgier, and today we're going one-on-one with Lieutenant Rob Brown. Lieutenant Brown has served the FDNY since 1996 and is currently assigned to Ladder Company 120 in Brownsville, New York. He is a cardiology physician assistant and lectures nationally on firefighter health and safety issues. He's the director of New York Firefighters Heart and Lung Institute and a frequent contributor to WNYF. How's it going, Rob? Thanks for being here. Hi, JP. Thanks for having me. Okay, Rob. So today we're going to talk about your article, Auditory Exclusion, and how it affects our operational performance on the fire ground. Auditory exclusion. It's not a word we or term that we hear every day. No, it's not. What should that mean to me as an emergency responder? What what does auditory exclusion mean to me? Auditory exclusion is a process in the body that allows you to focus on a life threat or a perceived threat. And what happens is during the sympathetic response that builds you up to be able to operate in environments that we have to operate as as firefighters um, that are life-threatening environments, our body goes through a process to prepare us to be able to have the courage to go through a door when there's fire on the other side or to operate in an environment that is extremely dangerous. Our body prepares for this through this process of the sympathetic response. One of the most important things that we have as a tool as firefighters when we're operating in emergencies is the ability to process information that's given over the radio. And that information given over the radio can affect decisions that we will make throughout an operation. And it's important for us not only to monitor the radio to pick up important information, but it's imperative that we don't miss important information such as maydays and urgent transmissions. Okay, so that sounds to me like it's a good thing, auditory exclusion. It's a good thing. I'm focused. Keeps me dialed in. You would think that, yes, uh, the process is to make you zero in on the threats that are affecting you immediately so that you can focus more intensely on the task of getting away from that life threat or avoiding yourself from getting into uh, an area where you, you might otherwise be injured or killed. So yes, this process is a good process, but it has to be controlled. And the reason it has to be controlled is as this process develops and it becomes oversaturated, you can have a negative effect from auditory exclusion in that you will start to miss a tremendous amount of transmissions that you otherwise may be able to hear in normal conversation. You reference in your article how good listeners capture 80% of a conversation and that that percentage diminishes once you introduce stress. Can you expand on that? Such as you and I are conversing now, a good listener is going to hear 80% of the spoken word in processing it. When you get into a fight or flight or sympathetic response, that number can drop by 50%. So that means that a good listener in a stressful environment that hasn't controlled auditory exclusion may be missing up to 60% of the spoken word. Now you could imagine being at an operation and only picking up 40% of what's being said over the radio, you can miss a tremendous amount of important information that would affect your ability to make the best decision possible in that operation and could ultimately cause you to miss a mayday or an urgent transmission or just a transmission that has pertinent information that 
can help you decide whether what you're about to do is what's best for the entire operation. In your article, you tie physiological reactions to heart rate. Heart rate is a sign of the process of the sympathetic response being activated. So a firefighter that is in the process of going to or responding to an alarm, they might notice their heart rate is elevated, not only while operating at the emergency, but just on the receipt of the alarm. Years ago, the FDMY did a heart rate study and they tracked a roofman from 43 truck. And the firefighter was wearing a heart rate monitor and they tracked him through the entire operation from the receipt of the alarm up until the end of the fire being under control. And the interesting finding in that particular firefighter was that the firefighter was going from a resting heart rate in the high 50s, low 60s to up to 80, 90 beats per minute just on the receipt of the alarm. There was no physical activity. The firefighter was just getting up from a chair and walking to the apparatus floor to don his gear. And then what they saw was as they tracked that heart rate through the operation, as they got more information that this was a confirmed fire and there were reports of people trapped, the firefighter's heart rate was responding to those cues from the dispatcher. And while responding in the apparatus, those heart rates were going up over 100 beats per minute. This firefighter has not even exerted themselves physically. So the process is starting early on without physical activity. And when research was done to find out why that was happening, the heart rate and this fight or flight response we learn more about is letting us understand that it's not just the physical activity that's causing this process to happen, but also the psychological process that happens of the perceived threat or the anticipation of going into an environment uh, such as a fire or a major emergency where life hangs in the balance. So how does an increased heart rate affect my performance as an emergency responder? The heart rate is a sign of the process that's happening. So not only does your heart rate elevate, but you'll also notice an increase in your blood pressure. You'll notice an increase in your core temperature. You'll notice an increase in tightening of your muscles. Your breath will get shorter and tighter. So this whole process is developing and going on inside each individual firefighter. Every single firefighter responds to these threats or perceived threats differently. So what triggers a firefighter to elevate this process early on might be a young firefighter without experience of going to an operation such as an all-hands fire. With a senior firefighter that has been to multiple fires, their body might not be reacting as quickly as that probationary firefighter or young firefighter who may not have the experience level. But the process happens in every individual. Some people just have the ability to recognize it and control it better than others. What we find is that when you have elevations of heart rate, certain body processes start to diminish. So a normal resting heart rate is 60 to 100 beats per minute in the average person. What happens is once you start to get up into the 115 beats per minute, 110 to 120 beats per minute, the firefighter or the emergency responder will notice that his or her fine motor skills will start to deteriorate. Now these are just averages, but it illustrates to you how the process starts to build up and how important it is to control it. When we start to get up to the 140 to 150 beats per minute, we can start to see complex motor skills deteriorating, such as a firefighter tying a knot. 
the engine chauffeur operating a pump panel, a firefighter connecting hose with two couplings. Things of that nature can start to deteriorate at that point. Then as you get into the alarming areas where you, you get up into the 160 to 180 or above, you're going to start to lose your cognitive process. That is your ability to look at something objectively and make a decision based upon what you're seeing versus a response that's involuntary, which might be to get out of that environment. You'll start to lose peripheral vision, which we all know is something called tunnel vision. Then we'll lose depth perception, your time, can be distorted, your near vision starts to deteriorate, and then we get into, again, uh, auditory exclusion. Your, your body's ability to not process words that are spoken or words that are heard, and that's where we start to see the deterioration. And then when we get above 175 beats per minute to 180 beats per minute, you can start to have people have irrational thoughts, they can fight or freeze, they have submissive behavior, and they can also lose control of their normal body functions. Can you walk me through a little of the science behind why my heart rate is increasing, why I'm beginning to sweat, why my pupils are dilating, why my respirations have increased? So what happens inside the body is your, your body basically dumps adrenaline. And what that does is it increases your heart rate, it increases your blood pressure, it's gonna dump sugar, glucose into the system to provide extra energy for those muscles and the need for anticipated activity. And it's also gonna increase your core temperature. And this is all to prepare the body for a life threat or to operate as firefighters do in life-threatening environments. Are there other signs that I'm nearing a fight or flight response? In other words, when high stakes or high stress environments create stress, how will that manifest itself physiologically in me? What are some of the things that I should look for? That's a great question. What I would say to that is each individual is going to develop different cues that are going to give them an early indication that they're starting this process and the process is starting to increase. For each individual, that cue may be something different. Somebody might be uh, exposed to an environment like public speaking and they get butterflies in their stomach. Another person might notice that they start to get a sweat on their brow. Other people are going to notice that their breath is going to get shorter and quicker. It's not a one-size-fits-all, but it's important for each individual, as they get an understanding of this process, to figure out what early cues their body is giving them so that they can start controlling it and managing it, because it is controllable and it is manageable. Can simply having knowledge of what is happening to my body in that stressful environment help me perform better? Yes. To be aware of the process that it exists and that it's happening is the first step. So by being aware that this is happening while you're operating in emergencies, you'll be better able to control it from negatively impacting your operation and the decisions that you're going to make at that operation. For instance, if you start to feel a cue from your body, for me, I feel my muscles getting tighter. When I'm responding to a fire and I hear from the dispatcher, 120, you got work there. We got reports of people trapped on the top floor. My body starts to tense up. It's a normal process, but that's a cue for me that I'm starting to get over aroused for this operation. And some of the things that I use to try and keep myself from going oversaturated with this response 
is to focus on my breathing. And I'll take some deep breaths in and deep breaths out to slow down the process. And I will start to feel my muscles relax a little bit more, my breathing getting more relaxed, and my thought process of what I have to do and what types of tasks we're gonna have to accomplish in order to effectively operate at that incident, I'll better understand and control that through breathing. So there's a part in your article where I actually felt some of these manifestations happen while I was reading it, right? When you were quoting things from a dispatcher, or it was a hypothetical, but this one part in particular where you say, your heart is pounding, your legs feel like rocks, you are focused on the task at hand. Size up the building, climb those stairs, force that door and rescue those occupants. Right? This is something that most of us in this line of work have, have felt at some point in our careers. Definitely. You follow that up with a, a couple of questions like, are you listening to the radio? Are you monitoring the progress of the first engine and the member's ability to stretch around, say, an elevator shaft? And then you put some emphasis on how important it is to track an operation. What are some of the best ways that we can track an operation? One of the best ways we can track an operation is to constantly size up the operation. We all learned in probie school the 13-point size up, and by analyzing that and breaking it down to seven points that are always constantly changing on the fire ground, we put out something called the essay cycle. It's about maintaining situational awareness and understanding not only what task you're doing and where you're operating, but how there are many things that constantly are changing in the operation that can affect the decision that you're about to make, such as life hazards, the type of construction, location and extent of fire, water resources, weather and wind, the tools needed for the objective that you're about to embark on, and the location of members operating, whether in the vicinity of you or operating remotely from you. As an officer, you also want to be aware of where your members are operating that might not be in the immediate vicinity. By looking at this and implanting this into your head as you're making decisions and taking these different points into your decision-making process, you'll better make the best decision for the overall operation. And as individual firefighters, we are task-oriented people. Someone tells you to do a task, and you're going to do the task until the task is complete. If I go to the floor above a fire and I tell a firefighter to force that door, I know that that task is going to be done, even if that firefighter has to special call a bulldozer to open up that door. But what we want to make sure that that same firefighter is focusing on that task, that they're also listening to other areas of the operation and how important it is for them to understand that what's going on remotely from them will affect their ability to be in the best position and be most effective to save the most lives. For instance, if you're a firefighter on the floor above, it is imperative that you're monitoring the conditions on the fire floor. We've had many firefighters that have died on the floor above the fire. And when we look back at different problems, many of those problems resulted in problems with water. And what we need to make sure that our firefighters are doing, or the floor above team, needs to be having somebody monitor the radio and the operation on the floor below so that if there's a water loss or there's a problem with advancement of fire, that we're aware of it, number one, and number two, we make the best decision given that information. So being in the most severely exposed apartment above that uncontrolled fire might not be the best situation for that firefighter to be in. 
it's not an absolute, but it's something that they have to be aware of because it can get them jammed up if things get even worse on the fire floor. So, Rob, in your article, you referenced just having an understanding of the side effects of fight or flight, how that would help a firefighter develop an enhanced training program. What kind of enhanced training can improve our effectiveness in terms of performance? So what we're learning is that we need to train in the environments that we expect our firefighters operate in. And when you look at the studies that are out there and referencing the military and other high-performance athletes, what we're seeing is that we need to not only master the skills, but once the skills are mastered, which would be for us forcing a door, stretching a line, making a search, putting up an aerial ladder, cutting a roof, once we've mastered those tasks, we have to start increasing stress into that training. We expect firefighters to operate in extreme environments, which would be considered an all-hands fire or a major emergency where life hangs in the balance. By just mastering the skills of the roof rope or tying a knot or stretching a line in a comfortable environment is not applicable to the environment that we're asking firefighters to operate in. So what we're learning and what we need to learn more about is how this process affects an operation. But we need to develop ways that we can train firefighters when they've reached a level of mastery of the task, inducing stress into the equation on a sliding scale upwards. So one would be mastering the ability to communicate properly on the radio. Then we'd want to add in some different scenarios that might be adding a little stress into that. But ultimately, we want to train that firefighter in communicating in the stressful environment that we expect them to operate in, which would be considered an all-hands fire. And that environment is a smoke-filled environment with high heat, with a lot of uncertainty of where they are or where they're operating in and how they need to communicate differently while they're on air and the different techniques that you have to use so that your information is given clearly, it is acknowledged, it's what the conditions you're seeing are, what your actions you're taking, and what the person's needs are. And we call that CAN, conditions, actions, and needs. And we understand that when you're in a stressful environment or in a high performance situation or a life or death situation, you're not gonna perform better under stress Statistically, nobody performs better under stress. What our goal would be is to make people aware of the things that can lessen their ability to function in those environments and minimize their impact on the individual and then the operation. If I could give firefighters out there one piece of advice and how to minimize the negative effects of auditory exclusion on themselves and how it may impact the way they operate at a, an emergency or a fire, I would emphasize the importance of staying calm, controlling your breathing, and making sure that you're as best prepared as you can for the operation environment that you're going to be expected to work in. Rob, it was great having you in the studio today. Thanks a lot. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year. 
And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.